0: would ask you to turn in your Bibles again to the book of Isaiah. You can kind of put your finger in chapter 11, the section we've read, but we're going to be moving it to other portions of this prophecy because if you've been with us the last few weeks, we're trying to see these great messianic passages that we find in Isaiah 7, 9, and 11 and just see it in their broader context. We tend to lift things out of context For the purposes of whatever it is we want to do, it's Christmas, we want good texts about the Messiah, so we run to these passages, and we do a straight uh, run from there to the New Testament and to Jesus, and that's not a bad procedure, anything that gets you to Jesus, gets you there in a hurry, that's fine with me, I'm not going to complain about that, but still Jesus... His testimony is found in the Old Testament as well. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. The Pharisees were Bible students, par excellence. They searched the scriptures to see if these, uh, I'm sorry, Um, for them they thought they had eternal life. And Jesus tells them, these are they which testify of me. And you won't come to me that you might have life. The whole burden of the Old Testament is to direct us to Christ. And it's the stuff in the middle as well that has importance to our understanding. It's also part, uh, we might say, of the word of Christ. Now, I think I'll give you an explanation with regard to titles this morning. Uh, Mike will tell you I, I'm not good at titling my messages. He tells me but I'm not as bad as he is, so he puts it back in my, my, my corner to... Put titles to the messages before they're put up on sermonaudio.com. And the thing about titles is depends on how I feel on a given day. What I'm thinking of entitling something, this is, you know, you move it along and you have further insights that are given. If I spoke the next week, it's going to be a different title than this week. If, I, if you hit me midweek, it'll be a different title than the end of the week or the, or the beginning of the week. That, that's how titles go. So you can see in the bulletin, the title of the morning message is The King and His Beauty. And I lifted that from... Uh, Isaiah 33 where the king you see the king and his beauty uh, we're told it's a little complicated passage but that language is there and certainly we see the king in this portion of scripture and we see him in his beauty but not just in his beauty. We also see him in his judgments, we see him in his sovereignty, we see him in many aspects of his. Uh, I mean, it's, there's a sense in which all of that is beautiful, but is that the best, most comprehensive title? I'm probably not going to talk about that uh, again this morning. The King and His Beauty, though, assume it. The, Christ is beautiful in every respect. Um, and then. Last night, if you were here last night, and you noted that I sought to give, uh, again, connections between chapter 7, chapter 9, and this morning, chapter 11, I said my message had three parts to it. And the first part had to do with the warning of Christmas. The Christmas comes with a warning. And that's not to pull an Ahaz and trusting other things than the living God. Not to make compromises with uh, the politics of the world or the religious systems of the world or the philosophical notions of the world and think that that's somehow going to add to your understanding of how to live life well in this world. God has given us his words And as to his words we need to give attention and we need to give heed. And we shouldn't be compromising and we shouldn't be looking to other sources. God's word to Ahaz is in faith you will stand. You don't don't trust and you won't stand. It's in trusting the Lord and trusting his word to the law and to the testimony. If they do not teach according to this word, there's no light in them. There's no truth to be found. There's nothing of substance to be found. It's all guesswork, apart from the authority of God's word. That God's given us an authoritative word, and it's to that word we should look. And then along with that word of warning, there also comes a word of wooing. That's where the beauty of Christ comes in. God presents Christ to us in enticing ways, in ways that are meant to hit us The depth of our soul. And particularly in ways of recognition that everything we lack is now provided in this Jesus. He's the perfectly suitable Savior. We need the one who is God with us. We need the one who is Emmanuel. We need this one who is the wonderful counselor and the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so God comes to us in these terms of, of wooing us to Himself, of saying, Make this your wholehearted choice, not just because you got no, nothing else to do, so uh, become a Christian. No, become a Christian because Christ has drawn you and, and, and wooed you, and, and you've entered into a covenant with Him of love and loyalty. And I said about a third point, and that was what is for this morning. And this morning, along with the warning of Christmas and the wooing of Christmas, there is the wonder of Christmas. And uh, that is certainly something I'm going to talk about this morning. But I'm going to talk about it in terms of Jesus, the King, of whom it can be said, He is a King like no other. So if I was to title the message this morning, that would be my title. And you can hear me say that more than once this morning. Jesus is a king like no other. We see something of the wonder of God's provision for us in this king because he is a king like no other. Now, let me say to you, and I haven't really emphasized it, but I, I, I could, that all these passages of messianic promise... All assume that this one who comes is a king. Again, the word that was given in chapter 7 was given to the king of Judah, King Ahaz. It was given in the light of his fear that other kings were going to supplant him and kick him, kick him off of his throne and supplant him with a puppet king. And so he's looking to another king, the king of Assyria, to ensure his kingdom. But the whole point is kingship. God gave a promise to David. And Ahaz was David's descendant. He was a Davidic king. And the promise to the Davidic king was that there's always going to be a son of David upon the throne unless that king is disobedient then God's going to chasten him and so there had to be obedience upon the part of the Davidic king and yet there is a promise of an eternal kingdom that somehow some way is connected with David and is connected with the Davidic kingdom and even when the Davidic kingdom is at its lowest and that came with the Babylonian captivity when the kings didn't fell they were taken into captivity to Babylon There was never a Davidic king after that. Yet God promised David would come. Ezekiel promised it. God's going to send David. There's going to be a branch who would shepherd the people of God. Jeremiah speaks to the issue. There's the hope and promise of the restored dynasty of David. A Davidic king will come. And of course Matthew brings us to understand that that David King is Jesus. He gives us fourteen generations to David the King, and fourteen generations of Davidic kings, and then fourteen generations with no Davidic king until the next Davidic king, Jesus. Whereas he was born King of the Jews, Jesus is the true and rightful descendant of David, the son of David, who mounts the throne of the universe as he ascends to the right hand of the Majesty on, on high. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. God, is, Jesus was raised to reign. Raised from the dead to reign. All authority in heaven and earth given to him. He is a king. And all these passages assume this, king, this kingship of Jesus, of Emmanuel, of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, of the increase of his government. There shall be no end on the throne of his father David, he will sit. And this is a passage as well that speaks about a, a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. I mean, the Davidic promise got so bad that it's not even the stump of, of David. Uh, because all these Davidic kings were such washouts. We got to go back to David's father and start this all over again. We're going to get a new David on the scene. Go back to Jesse, David's father. And let's see a new David arise. That's really the point of chapter 11. And this David will come and he will reign. He will be enthroned in majesty and in glory as a king like no other. What are some of the aspects of his throne, of his dominion, of his kingship, that we should be understanding in the light of this portion of Isaiah? Well, I want to suggest three things that uh, characterize the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of Jesus. This king who is like no other, in the first place, is a king who... Exercises a kingship of sovereign purpose and dominion he carries forward the purposes of a sovereign God secondly he rules and exercises his throne in the power of the Holy Spirit it's a kingdom of spiritual power as well as sovereign purpose and then finally it's a kingdom that realizes the presence of of kingship universally it's not just limited to judah it's not just limited to israel there's a universal kingship that jesus exercises and so there's a universal scope so the three things i want to look at is sovereign purpose spiritual power and universal scope to this kingdom and with those three things i will say everything i think i need to say or know to say and hopefully it'll be a christmas message that will convince us that the king we celebrate who has come into the world truly is a king like no other first of all the kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom that carries forward the purposes of a sovereign God one of the things that this passage tells us is that when you don't obey God troubles come difficulties come Ahaz was not an obedient king. He was an idolater. He committed abominable acts. Even his children, it says, he put to the fire. He offered up sacrifice, human sacrifice unto the Baals unto the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the Assyrians. He took a, an altar that he found in Nineveh in the kingdom of the Assyrians and he brought it back and replaced the altar of burnt offering with a pagan altar. Now some of the crimes he was guilty of, you read about it in the book of Second Chronicles, Luke chapter 28. You see the crimes of Ahaz and you can be not surprised in the least. God brought troubles his way. God brought the kingdom of Syria and Judah and, 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 and the northern kingdom of Ephraim to conspire against him, get this guy off of the throne. And yet Isaiah comes to him and says, You're a washout, you're an evil man, you're a terrible king. Actually he didn't say that, that kind of assumed from Chronicles. But God still gave him hope. God still gave him grace. God still offered him his mercy. Even in the light of the appalling things that, David, that that Ahaz did. And Ahaz needs to understand that the God of heaven and earth is sovereign over all conditions, all situations. That includes Ephraim. That includes Syria. That includes Assyria. And he's worthy of our confidence and trust because he rules human history. Nothing happens by accident. When you have all these political changes that are happening in Israel, this confederacy of nations to the north, the Assyrians, that threat, in that direction, God's people need to know that Satan hasn't ascended the throne and taken over. And sometimes Christians say that. Satan's having his way in things. Well, maybe God's having his way. I mean, you know, Satan is on a leash in a real sense. Remember Job? God told him you can go this far and no further. God's on the throne. God sovereignly determines all things that occur in his world. Who's up on the throne? He raises up kings. He casts down kings. And there's a section in the 10th chapter in which God makes it clear all of these changes, all of these situations, all of these fears and and threats uh, that he warns his people of they don't happen on their own they don't happen divorced from his hand of sovereignty in fact one of the great refrains of chapter 9 is that for all this his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still All this stuff that's happening is the hand of God stretched out still. And this is really explained quite clearly in the words of chapter 10 and verse 5 where God speaks to the Assyrians. This was the great empire of that time. The empire that would ultimately destroy The northern kingdom, take the northern kingdom into captivity in 722 BC, and that there was no longer an Ephraim. There was no longer a northern kingdom. There was the, you know, the Samaritans came and uh, that was a a mixed racial culture that was from conquered regions that the Syrians had conquered and placed in that land. They weren't native to it. Uh, The people that were native to it were exiled. They were sent away to distant places. That was the way the Assyrians just. Broke the back of opposition, broke the heart of people, made them permanent exiles away from their home, dislocated them, and this—the uh, horrible thing they did. But they—that's how that was their policy. And yet, yet this horrible empire of the Assyrians, God calls, "Wrought of my anger." The staff in their hands is my fury. They're not doing anything that's not an expression of what ultimately I am bringing upon my people for their own sins. And I'm bringing this judgment upon them because they've broken the covenant. They've been unfaithful to my will and unfaithful to my ways. This is an expression of my own wrath, an expression of my own judgment. God says, against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him. To take spoil and seize plunder. To tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now again, this is not God doing it. It's the Assyrians that are doing it. But God gives them leave to do it. Because in that sense, they are fulfilling His will and purpose. But now, their will and purpose is not to please God. It's not to serve God. They're serving their false gods. They're serving their own desires. And so verse 7 says, He does not so intend... And his heart is not so think but in his heart is to destroy to cut off nations not a few he's not looking to serve God but God says they're serving me anyway they're serving me anyway They're ultimately fulfilling my plan and my will the picture of the God of the Bible is simply that he's upon his throne and all is well with the world and not what the psalms of enthronement in the book of Psalms chapter, I guess it's 93 and on. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. That's what it says. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. That's our comfort. God is upon his throne. And he uses the affairs of kings and nations to accomplish his own sovereign will and his own Sovereign purpose. Now, Assyria doesn't stay upon their path of destruction for long. Ultimately, God says they're going to come up for their own judgment before Him. Verse 12 When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in His eyes. And God begins to rebuke the Assyrians and say their growth, their and he uses an illustration of the forest, of, of strong trees in the forest. You think it's never going to be destroyed. And God says he's going to bring a fire upon it so that what's going to remain is so few, so few. That mighty forest is going to be burnt down. Verse 18, the glory of his forest and his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away and the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. A child can say, yeah, okay, there's one or two trees left. That's about it. I really can't count up to that many, but whatever I can count up to is a child. That's what's there. That's what's there. God's going to bring judgment upon the Assyrians. They're not going to be exempted from judgment. But here's the point of it all. Is that the king of Israel was to reflect the kingdom of God. The heart of God. David was a king after God's own heart. And the glorious thing is that the Son of God comes from the glory he had with the Father from the foundation of the world to come and take our human nature for the purpose of humanity once again rising to the throne of God's glory there's a man that's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high he's the God man Christ Jesus and he fulfills God's purpose for human destiny God made us to have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air he made us to have dominion and that dominion now is exercised by our Lord now he's going to bring in a kingdom that's pure and righteous and in, in, in new heavens and new earth and we will rule and reign with him we're told we are destined for a kingship but we're not prepared for kingship put the kingdom in our hands and it's going to be terrible we're going to end up serving ourselves and our own things but there's one who's seated at the right hand of God who's the king of glory who says All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And it's one of the hymns we sing that speaks about Jesus uh, reigning, and it says, It's well for us, thou rulest. It's well for us, thou rulest. It's well for us that someone is sitting in the right hand of the majesty on high, exercising authority over the nations, because his reign is a reign of love. His reign is a reign of wisdom. His reign is a reign of grace. His reign is a reign where He opens hard hearts. He gives life to the dead. He hears and He answers our prayers. He gives gifts to His church. That's the one we want upon the throne. Filled with love. Filled with kindness. Filled with mercy. Filled with grace. Who's demonstrated His own love towards us. in that when we were sinners, He died for us. He laid down His life for us. He gave the ultimate sacrifice. He is a king like no other king, reigning in sovereign majesty, unrivaled purpose of grace and of power. And it's interesting, the contrast you find in chapter 10, where chapter 10 begins, is a word of woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees... And writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. What is true of human leaders? They serve themselves, not others. They serve their own interests, not the interests of others. They look to increase power for themselves, wealth for themselves, at the expense of others. Especially the weak, the widows, the fatherless, the poor, the needy. Jesus has a specialty in meeting the needs of the poor. The gospel comes to the poor. Not many mighty, not many noble, not the great ones of the earth. God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. The nobodies of this world... To be somebodies to him. Not the wise of the world. The foolish of the world. To make them wise. With the wisdom that's a godly wisdom. Because you see the the kings of this earth. Are kings that do not exercise authority. With the purity and wisdom. And love and generosity of the true king of glory. So Jesus again is like no other king. Reigning in sovereign and rival purpose reigning with a heart of love and a heart of grace to all whom he reigns over. And that brings us to the second thing, that he reigns in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, the typical king reigns at his own carnal ambition, his own worldly desires inform all of his choices and all of his um, commitments And one of the things that was true, part of God's anger against Judah was just in this very area, that the city was an unfaithful city. The city didn't care for the people of the city, didn't care for the needy of the city, who was cruel and oppressive, exploiting the weak, robbing from the widow, increasing their wealth at the expense of the orphan it's you know, so all the things typical of the kings of the earth remember when Israel wanted a king and God sent Samuel to say to them you get a king and we want a king like all the other nations yeah but what are the kings of the other nations like well they're going to take your sons to fight their wars they're going to take your daughters to be their servants maybe even their, you know, in, their in their harems they, they will exploit, they will rape they will use, they will abuse that's typical of the kings of the earth You look at the kings of the Davidic dynasty, and they were very much like the worldly kings of this world. But a new king comes. A new David makes his appearance. Again, the imagery of the trees of the forest, David's kingdom is even less than what the Assyrians will be because there's simply a stump left. There's a stump left. A stump of a tree is there. In what was once a great mighty dynasty of David's rule and Solomon's rule. Now there's a stump. A stump of Jesse. A branch from its roots will bear fruit. And upon this one will be... The spirit of the Lord to rest. The spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him. That's the distinguishing mark of this king. This king will bear fruit because the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. A fruitful rain. Because this king will reign not like the foolish, godless, unrighteous kings of Israel and Judah. But the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him so that he will know the full abundance of the Spirit's gifts and graces. Some of them are mentioned. And again, there's seven of these things that are mentioned. The Spirit, number one, is the Spirit of the Lord. It's God's Spirit that will rest upon him. And of course, the Spirit of God... Resting upon the Son of God is the picture you have of Jesus' baptism where you really have the three persons of the Holy Trinity coming before our eyes in full view. The Son of God sent from the Father's glory who is Himself God stands in the waters of the Jordan and the voice of the Father is heard from heaven saying, this is my Son, my beloved one in whom I am well pleased. And the heavens opened Mark says the heavens are torn apart. It's an interesting word that's used, torn apart, because later on in Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 64, he prays that you would rend the heavens and you would come down. Lord, what we need is the visitation of the God of heaven and earth coming. And Isaiah's prayer is heard and answered in the Jesus' baptism, in the coming of Christ, when the heavens are open. The Spirit of God comes and descends upon the Son of God. It's No one less than the Holy Spirit resting upon the Son of God that brings life to a dead world, that brings redemption to a guilty world, that brings peace to a world at war, that brings righteousness to a world that's depraved and self-interested and sinful and turned in upon itself. God's spirit rests upon the king. There's the spirit of the Lord. Then the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. Wisdom speaks of skill in living. How to live well. How to live rightly. Jesus is the true human being who truly embodies what human identity in God's image should look like. You want to see what perfection looks like? Look at the Son of God you want to see what man was created to be in the image and likeness of God see Jesus in whose image we are called to be conformed God's image is in him he's the image of the invisible God we see what God's like in him and we see what we should be like in him one filled with the spirit of wisdom skillful in living the spirit of understanding he understands the will of God. He understands the heart of man. He knows what's in man, we're told. He didn't need anybody to testify of man. He, knew, he himself knew what was in man. Penetrating understanding of the human condition. Penetrating understanding of the will of his Father that he might do that will. The spirit of counsel. Again, being able to convey to others the wisdom he possesses later on Isaiah is going to speak about the servant who has the tongue of the learned that he might give counsel to those in need appropriate counsel he's the mighty he's the wonderful counselor in chapter 9 because he possesses that counsel that he's able to impart to others to teach us God's will and God's ways and then might when the king who's mighty we need a king that's able to restrain our natural hearts to move in directions we ought not to go. To teach us God's ways that we could be clothed with the power of God. To live for the glory of God. We're called to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. He possesses unlimited might that He imparts to His people. We need this kind of king. The spirit of knowledge. Of course, the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs says, is the fear of the Lord. Jesus possesses this fear of the Lord. Religious devotion, religious fear that regards the eye of God as its chief delight to please Him. To bring our life in conformity to Him. his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. and You shall not judge by what His eyes see. Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. I mean, you're not going to get into the heart of Jesus on some uh, pretentious uh, sob story. Remember Old Queen for the Day? You, some of us are old enough to remember Queen, 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 Queen for the Day. I think it was called television show. Every day, people would come up with their sob stories, how terrible their lives were, and uh, then if they gave the story that was most pitiable. Uh, they would get more applause than everybody else yeah we favor that person I mean it could be a whole pack of lies but nonetheless that person has really told us how terrible life is for them so let's bring on the, the, the washing machine and the refrigerator and the new car and all the things that they will win on this show called Queen for a Day you become Queen for a Day and we give you all this stuff to make your life happy first of all Jesus is not prone to bow to our sob stories that are just a matter of our own delusion, and then he doesn't just pamper us with all these gifts that are perhaps not in our best interests. He's going to judge righteously. He's going to judge in terms of what we genuinely need in the light of our real condition, not some phony thing. And he's not going to be bribed by what other people say. And again, the kings of this earth are very much impressed by what their courtiers tell them. Somebody comes up to them and says this or that, and you know the last one that speaks to some of these people are the things that make the biggest impression upon them and how they reign and rule. Jesus is not like that. He, he, he penetrates into the essence of things, into the reality of things, so that with righteousness he judges the poor, with equity. He decides for the meek of the earth. He always does the right thing. Righteousness is the belt of his waist. Faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And he brings in a kingdom in which... There's reconciliation. Wolf lying down with the lamb. Leopard with the young goat. Natural ravenous animals that would eat the goat lies down with them. Again, I don't think this is necessarily uh, saying this is what the literal picture is going to be. You know the Jehovah's Witnesses, they come at your door and they give you all the pictures with all this kind of cheesy artwork <laughs> which you see lying, lying down with them. This is what the kingdom is like if you follow Jehovah. If you come and you join our group, you're going to be part of this kingdom. I mean, it's really, metaphoric. Again, he's talking about nations. He's talking about peoples that are at war with one another, that are adversarial to one another, show no mercy or pity to one another. And God says, the righteous kingdom of my son, when he comes, he's going to bring reconciliation with those who natively are just not at all going to get along with one another. And know what Jesus does? He builds a church that's comprised of what? Jews and Gentiles in one body. Male and female becoming brothers and sisters in the Lord. Slaves and masters becoming, again, brothers in the Lord. Oh, holy night, the slave is our brother. Reconciliation that the grace of Christ brings, uniting us in one body through the blood of the cross, making one new man in Christ Jesus. That's the picture of this kingdom of peace. Jesus comes and brings so that they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain glorious picture of the righteous king not hearing bribes not influenced by self interest not listening to the lobby groups who say this thing or that thing not persuaded by the influential the powerful, he does the right thing brings justice to those that are treated most unjustly. deals well with the poor and the meek of the earth and ushers in this wondrous, peaceable kingdom. Just like Jesus is like no other king in that he is sovereign and rivaled in his purposes. But again, he's like no other king reigning in spiritual power. Reigning in goodness, in righteousness, and wisdom, in love. Finally, this king not only is unlike any other king in his sovereign reign, pur- sovereign purpose and spiritual power, but also the universal scope of his kingship—not just the Jewish kingdom, the benefit of the tribes of Israel, the expense of the Assyrians, their our enemies, the Egyptians, their ancient enemy. But what does this kingdom do? Well, in that day, verse ten. In that day, the root of Jesse. Will stand as a signal for the peoples, not just the people singular, the peoples plural. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. He's not just going to rest in one place in Jerusalem and carry out his kingship from there. The resting place is again the throne in the heavenlies where his influences fell throughout the world throughout the earth as he sends forth the Holy Spirit to rest upon the nations with gospel mercies and with gospel grace. In that day verse 11 the Lord will extend his hand again that hand that was over the nations in judgment his hand stretched out in judgment now his hand is going to be stretched out to redeem, to recover, to bring people back to himself. Extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant, the remains of his people. All the exiles, all the people taken out of Israel are now going to be brought back from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush. Every direction of the compass he'll bring back his people to himself. But again, not just his people, singular, the people's plural. He'll raise a signal for the nations. He'll bring back the banished of Israel. He'll bring back the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. He's going to take away the enmity between these nations against one another. The jealousy of Ephraim is going to depart from them. In verse 13, those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah. Judah will not be harassing. What is the picture? A united people of God. One people, no longer two nations, two peoples, no longer adversaries. Now they will be friends with one another. Verse 16 speaks, I'm sorry, yes, yeah, 16 speaks of a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains. But you see, they're going to bring not just Jews back. They're going to bring the remainder of the nations back. For the vision of Isaiah is not just limited to one particular people. Ultimately, it's the nations of the world that are embraced in the purposes and will of God. Again, you go back to chapter 2 where the picture is that the nations come to Zion shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and above the hills, all the nations shall flow to it. Many peoples will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. The nations will want to be united with the people of God. The work of the Abrahamic covenant will be achieved and that God's people will be a light to the nations. God's people will bring the blessing of Abraham to the nations. The blessing of creation restored to the nations who all bow the knee to one common king and united to God through the work of that king ushering in a kingdom that encompasses the nations of the world. Make disciples of the nations. Jesus says. Baptizing them into the name of the Father. And of the Son. And of the Holy Spirit. And Lord I am with you always. Emmanuel. With you always. Even to the end. Of the age. A king like no other. Reigning in sovereign purpose reigning in spiritual power, reigning with a universal scope. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive our King. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for our Lord Jesus. We give you thanks that He is a King like no other we are thankful we can be secure in the knowledge that he reigns it's well for us he does rule we thank you that he reigns in wisdom and he reigns in love and he reigns in sovereign provision he reigns for the good of his church he reigns so that the kingdom of his grace would be extended unto the ends of the earth that the blessings that he brings will abound as far as the curse is found We thank you for him who came from the glory he had with you from the foundation of the world to again go back to glory but not just the glory he had in the same way but bringing human nature back into the presence of the throne room of the God of heaven that we can be restored through him to that place that was lost through sin to the blessings that were lost through our own waywardness, and our own self-absorption and self-will. We thank you there is a King who reigns at your right hand, who's able to subdue all of his enemies under his feet, who's able to bring us from our love of idols to worship and to serve a living and a true God, and to wait for your Son from heaven, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We pray that this Lord's Day, this Christmas Day, will be a day of overwhelming joy in the hearts of your people as we consider our King and His uniqueness, as we consider that He is a King that excels all others. He is a King like none other. We ask you to hear our prayers, to receive our praises, to bless your people as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Продолжение следует...